Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, we are in John 16. If you're a guest this morning, uh, welcome in Christ's name. Uh, back in January, we started a journey uh, going through the Gospel of John, and many of you have been uh, following along in your daily devotional. Going through John, many of you have been gathering together in small groups, in life groups, to talk about the contents of the Gospel of John, and it's just been a great journey. And uh, we've spent this time uh, looking at the life uh, of Jesus Christ, of course, as he's on this three-year camping trip with the disciples. And uh, so we've looked at this, Jesus' healing, Jesus' teachings, um, uh, all the ways uh, in which he is just making himself known as the Son of God, of the very presence of God, come to earth to dwell among God's people. And we've got to this place in the Gospel of John, it's called the Farewell Discourse. And Jesus takes a long, long time, at least according to John, uh, to say goodbye, to say goodbye to the disciples. He is going away. And so in John 13 and 14, they're gathered together around a meal. It's just this meal time, and Jesus is giving them instructions. Guys, it's going to get really bad. I'm leaving. They're going to kill me. Um, but I want you to take heart. Keep going. Have faith. Be strong. The Holy Spirit's going to come and lead and guide you. And by the way, serve one another. Love one another. And so then Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Then we get to this point in John 15 and 16. Uh, they get up from the meal and they're walking. It's this conversation. If you've ever been for a walk with someone and they're just, we're just having this talk back and forth and this is what's going on where we're at in John 15 and 16. And then by the time they get to, we get to John 17, Jesus is going to, I think, stop walking and all of chapter 17 is a prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying for the disciples, for us, for the church. It's just this wonderful time. And then John 18, uh, they're at the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what happens at the Garden of Gethsemane. So I lay that all out there for you. This is the last week, the last days, even the last hours of Jesus' life. And they're having this conversation. And so things are really intense. Things are just, uh, the, the disciples are really freaking out at this point in time. Everything is falling apart. The world is turned upside down for the disciples because they think everything is going great with this Jesus movement. And the kingdom of God and the Messiah has come. And then Jesus says, I'm going away. Stay strong. The Holy Spirit will be with you to lead you and guide you. Now Judas has already left. He is out meeting with folks, getting in the midst of betraying Jesus. In just a matter of hours, Peter is going to deny even knowing Jesus because his mind, he's just kind of lost his mind. He's freaking out. He's going, oh my goodness, who, what is going on? The world has gone absolutely crazy. Pretty soon, all the disciples are going to scatter because they too are afraid as the world has turned upside down. And in the midst of all this, Jesus says, take heart. The Holy Spirit will be with you to lead you and guide you. And by the way, things aren't going to get much better. They're, they're going to get worse. But in the end, there will be victory. In the end, I will overcome. And Jesus says, don't forget, no matter how bad things get, that through my name, that victory is assured. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
uh, for this time gathered together to worship you, to serve you, and to open your word, God, as we continue through uh, the Gospel of John. And so, God, just make us open, make us um, available to hear your word and to respond to your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, about 15 years ago, uh, I had just finished up uh, an eight-mile run in suburban Atlanta, Georgia, and I was getting ready to turn into the uh, subdivision uh, where we lived, and up ahead, I heard a woman yelling, thief, thief, he's got my purse. And so I look up ahead, and a couple blocks ahead of me, he was quite a ways off, was some guy uh, running. And let's just say he didn't look like a runner. He didn't have on-runner clothes. Uh, he um, street clothes, um, and he was not also built like a runner. So he actually looked more like a, a linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. I mean, this was a very large man running down the street. And uh, so I thought, well, I could either go home um, and just kind of ignore it, and it'll go away in my mind anyways, or I can see what's going on. And so I chose to... Uh, run and uh, catch up to this guy. And after about a block, I caught him. It wasn't real difficult to catch him. And I just kind of stayed a little distance away because I didn't... He was big, all right? He was big. And so uh, I didn't know if he was going to turn around and pummel me or what. So I kept my distance. And so I just kept running. And, uh, and he pretty soon uh, turned around, looked, noticed that I was following him. And uh, he kept going. I kept going. And after a little bit, he turned around and looked at me and said, why are you following me? And I said, here's the deal. I run marathons. I can stay with you for as long as you keep running. And so he kept running, turned down another subdivision. I turned down another subdivision, went through an alleyway. I went through the alleyway. And this just kind of went on for a while. And pretty soon, I started hearing police sirens and, I, and then I'm kind of over there going, hey, over here, over here. And pretty soon, they have a conversation with this large man. And it was all over. Then I went home and finished out my day. As I think back on that trailing that guy 15 years ago, I have to tell you, it was a little bit intense. Actually, it was a lot of intense. It was a little bit scary. But at the same time, as I was chasing after him, I had this overwhelming sense of peace. I know how this is going to end. In the end, the police are going to show up and do what they do. And then I can get, just kind of step back and do what I do, is go about the rest of my day. At no point in time, as I was following this guy running through the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, was I concerned that the police would not show up. I knew that they would catch this guy. I knew that this alleged thief was going to face justice, that ultimately everything was going to be okay. But in the moment that I was chasing him, in the moment that I was following him, I was a little bit nervous, I was a little bit anxious. It was confusion. It was chaotic. I didn't know where he was going to go. I didn't know what he was going to do. And I, kept, I remember I keep telling myself, stay focused, just stay with him, keep going. Eventually things are going to work out. And in many ways, this is what's going on with the disciples. Confusion, 
chaos, wondering what is going on. And Jesus says, stay focused, keep going, trust me, because in the end, there will be victory. I will overcome. So we pick it up with John 16, 16, as Jesus continues to encourage and remind the disciples that no matter what they face, no matter what they're going through, ultimately, that he will overcome. John 16, 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more? But then after a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does it mean by in a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. I mean, to hear the confusion going on in the conversation, in the dialogue, this is what's going on. There's just this confusion. And so the disciples start talking to one another. What is going on? What does Jesus mean? And I think this is so interesting that human nature, the one person who can clear all this up, is standing there right there in their midst. But they just kind of ignore Jesus in that moment. Hey, Pete, what does Jesus mean? I don't know, Bart. What do you think he means? Hey, Jimmy, what do you think Jesus means? I don't know. Matthew, what do you think he means? And Jesus is going, hello. If you have a question, I'm right here. And isn't that true that so oftentimes we, we hear something and we're confused, and rather than going to the person who actually has the answer, we just sit and talk amongst ourselves. This is what's going on in the story. And I, I, I take some comfort in this because this is what we do today. This is how the disciples were, were, were functioning even in those days. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they'll, they'll ask me questions. Hey, I wonder if I should be moving to Albuquerque or something like, hey, what, do you think God thinks I should get a new job? I'm trying to figure that out. Or I've got this relationship situation going on. And they'll be asking me all these questions. I'm like, I don't know. How would I? I have trouble hearing from God myself with my own stuff. Go ask Jesus if you're supposed to move to Albuquerque. Go ask Jesus if you're supposed to change jobs. Go ask Jesus. Go to the source of the one who actually has answers for you. I'm happy to listen to you. I'm happy to pray with you. I'm happy to discern with you. You don't have to come to me to hear from God's voice. And this is what the disciples are doing. And Jesus is like, guys, I'm over here. Verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while? Uh, while uh, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn when the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And of course, what Jesus is doing is he's preparing them for, uh, that just in a matter of hours that he is going to hang on a cross. And of course, they're going to be sad. Of course, they're going to grieve. But then three days later, 
the tomb, the stone will roll away from the tomb. Jesus will walk out of the tomb, and then they will experience great joy. And so as if this isn't enough to just say, hey, guys, you're going to be really, really sad, and then you're going to really be really, really happy. Let me give you an illustration uh, in verse 21 here. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And so Jesus uses this illustration of childbirth. He says, guys, here's what's going on. Just as when a woman has a baby, it hurts. It is painful. Eventually, that mother is going to experience incredible joy. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus, being a man, talks about childbirth using that as an illustration, right? Because if you talk to a guy about childbirth, you're just going to probably get a very different uh, interpretation of all the events that went on. My favorite interpretation of childbirth, uh, of a woman describing childbirth to us guys, is Carol Burnett. Anybody remember Carol Burnett? Carol Burnett says, if you want to understand what it's like to experience childbirth, take your lower lip, pull it over your head, and that kind of gives you some idea about how it feels, right? And all of us guys are like, that doesn't seem like that at all, right? I just remember being so happy. You know, I remember when our three kids were born and in my own interpretation of the events. So Michaela was our first child, and when she was born, we were living in Thailand. And I remember getting up in the middle of the night and uh, helping my wife get on our motorcycle, driving to the hospital. We get there in the middle of the night, and they put her on a wheelchair, uh, wheel her into the hospital, only to learn that our doctor, her doctor, was um, about 20 hours away in Bangkok. And the nurses said to us, literally, can you come back on Monday? I'm like, sure, works for me. What do you think, dear? She's like, no, we're having this baby now. I mean, that, that, that's what I remember. Or I, I remember when Logan was born. We were living in uh, West Central Africa. We were in Cameroon. And again, it was nighttime. I don't know why our kids always decided to come in the middle of the night. This time, we had upgraded from a motorcycle to a car. And so I remember driving my wife through the dirt streets of Yaoundé, Cameroon, in the middle of the night. We're almost to the hospital. And then up ahead, some cow uh, herder guy decided that was a good time to move cows through the streets in Yaoundé, Cameroon. And so there we are, there's, there's just this herd of cows up ahead of us. And I remember having to explain to him in my very broken French, uh, please move out of the way to a side street so I can get my pregnant wife, who is about to have a baby, uh, to the hospital. That's what I remember about when Logan was born. I think about when uh, Q was born, and uh, we were living in Minnesota uh, at the time, and it was pretty uneventful, frankly. I remember it was a rainy day. It was a stormy day. This time it was daytime. But the thing I remember about when our son Q was born is that the doctor on call that day looked exactly like the actor Richard Gere. It was very difficult for my wife to concentrate on the task at hand. 
in that moment. And it was just this very strange experience of Richard Gere, you know, helping my wife give birth uh, to this baby. And I'm like, dear, I'm over here. I'm over here. And she just really wasn't all that interested in looking at me, I guess. I don't know. That's what I remember about childbirth with the three kids uh, that I experienced childbirth. Uh, so those are some of the memories that we continue to talk about in our house and we laugh about. But I will also say uh, one of the other things I remember from all three childbirth experiences of our kids uh, was my wife yelled and screamed like I've never seen her yell and scream and experience pain like I've never seen her experience pain before. And there I stood, there I sat, just helpless, just I, I didn't know what to do. But in the moment each one of those kids was born, it was done. It was, just, it was all of a sudden like everything in the room went silent. It was quiet. It was fine. And there was this incredible sense peace. Emotionally, physically, my wife had done a 180 from just this incredible sense of pain and anguish to all of a sudden peace and joy. And so as you think about maybe when some of your kids were born, a similar kind of experience. So Jesus uses this as an illustration that many of us can relate to. Verse 23, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figur figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So several times Jesus talks about asking in his name. Ask in my name. Ask in my name. What is Jesus talking about here? Is he saying when you ask in my name, it's, it's kind of like a lucky rabbit's foot. Or ask in my name, it's, it's kind of like having a four-leaf clover. So when you ask in my name, it all of a sudden provides some kind of magic for whatever your desires are. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Dear God, I just want a Ferrari in Jesus' name. Dear God, whip my kid into shape in Jesus' name. Dear God, help me with the situation at work in Jesus' name. Dear God, help me with this cancer in Jesus' name. Is that what he's talking about? Is he just saying we use his name and, and end our prayers in Jesus' name and then all of a sudden we get some extra Holy Spirit into the prayer? That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he is saying is when you pray and you ask in my name, you're not doing that for God's benefit. You're doing that for your benefit. Because when you ask in the name of Jesus Christ, what you are doing in that moment is you are acknowledging all that is good, all that is a blessing in your life, the source of life. So when you ask in the name of Jesus, what you're saying is, God, you are good and faithful and you are the source of all that is good. 
So it's, it's a way for us when we pray to acknowledge the source of life, to acknowledge where all of life comes from. And this is really different. And so as Jesus is saying this, this is hard for us to understand, but every Jewish person there, they knew that if you wanted something from God, you went to the temple and you went to the priest. Because the priest served as the intermediary. So you would go to the temple with your sheep or your goats or, or your bulls or whatever you were going to bring to God. You would give it to the, uh, to, to the priest. And then the priest would sacrifice the blood of that animal on the altar. And the priest was the intermediary between us and God. And Jesus says, okay, guys, that time is over. We're getting rid of the priests. From now on, you don't need an intermediary. Go directly to God and use my name. And this is what's going on. So this is a really radical teaching here. Jesus says, acknowledge me. I am the source. I am your new intermediary. Bring your needs, bring your desires to me. Verse 27. Know the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And I believe that I come from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without a figure of figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming. In fact, a time is, uh, has come when you will be scattered, each of you to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So Jesus, of course, is foreshadowing what's about to happen. He's saying, guys, things are going to get really bad, and every single one of you are going to abandon me in my worst hour of my life. Now just put yourself in Jesus' shoes. He knows how things are going to go down. And yet all his friends, his friends, his closest people, they scatter. Think about you. Think about those close relationships in your life. As you're going through the most difficult time in your life, as you experience something uh, very, very hard, whether it's a health issue, a broken relationship, a financial crisis. You think about, you can go to those people in your life. They're the people that you want to trust. They're the people that you want to lean on. And they leave you. Like, yeah, I don't have time. Or like Peter, yeah, I don't know him. I mean, what, what if your closest friends abandoned you in your worst hour of need? This is what's going to happen to Jesus, and he knows it's going to happen even before it happens. Well, how would you respond? I know how I'd respond. I'd have words. I would feel so abandoned. I would feel like, are you kidding me? I thought you were my friend. I thought you were someone who was there for me, and I'm going through something really, really difficult now, and you're gone. I mean, that would just be horrible. I wouldn't want to hang out with those people anymore. I wouldn't want to spend any time with them because I would feel so abandoned. 
But look at how Jesus responds. A time is coming, in fact, when you will be scattered, each of you in your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So he knows it. And rather than saying, you jerks, you're leaving me. Can't believe it. What's wrong with you people? He has this incredible confidence. He says, my Father is with me. And of course, Jesus is making a nod to the Trinity, that God, the Father, will be with him. He says, God is going to be with me. And he continues to love the disciples. I would have got up and walked out of the room at that point in time and said, I don't need you guys. But Jesus stays there and continues to talk with them and walk with them. Jesus has a love for us that we don't understand. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll uh, say, you know what, I blew it. I really messed up. And I, hear me out. I, I think confession is good. When you blow it, you should confess it. But sometimes when people are confessing their sins, the ways in which they have done wrong, they feel so badly about themselves as if God couldn't love them in the midst of, of their sinfulness. And what I want to say to them, and sometimes I have said to people, is yes, you blew it, but God knew you were going to blow it. Even before God created you, God knew you were going to blow it. God knew you were going to sin, and yet He still loves you. And guess what? Next week, next month, next year, you're going to blow it again, and you are going to sin and yet God is going to love you, no matter what. And I think we really struggle with this idea of how our behavior impacts our relationship with God. God never loves when we sin, right? But He never stops loving us. And the Greek term for this, of course, is agape. It's this idea of love that we just don't have this kind of definition in our language. Uh, in our English language. But agape love is this idea. It's the highest form of love. It's selfless, sacrificial, unconditional. It's a love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstances. So no matter how much you blow it, no matter how much you sin, no matter how much you do wrong, God's not like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you sinned. God's like, I knew you were going to sin. And I still love you. I'm not going to abandon you, even though you have abandoned me. So in John 3, when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, this idea, God loved the world so unconditionally, no matter how much sin there was, no matter how much people turned their backs on God, God loved the world so much that He was still going to send His Son into the world to redeem, to rescue us, even though we're going to just deny him and hang him on a cross to die. I think this love that God offers us, and I want you to hear today, if you blew it this week, God still loves you. When you blow it next week, God still loves you. There's nothing you can do for God to love you any less. Jesus continues in verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. 
In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now look at just two words uh, in this, this verse here, peace and trouble. And I think this is really interesting when we look at the word trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. In other words, as long as you are living in this world, trouble is guaranteed. Problems are guaranteed. To be a human being is to experience suffering. Suffering is actually the default of the human condition. And it's so interesting that we live in a day and time, our, our culture of comfort, our culture of convenience, our culture of we just want everything. We want to feel good. And we expect it. And when good things don't happen in our life, we shake our fist at God, right? God, how could you allow this to happen? And God says, folks, to be human means to suffer. This is what it means to be a human being. This is the default condition of the human condition, that we are people who suffer. That's what it means. Expect it. When you suffer, just expect it. The philosopher uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, he said it this way. And he, of course, Nietzsche was not a Jesus follower, right? But he understood this. He says, to live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. I think Nietzsche was wrong because he lived before the day of cell phones and television and technology. He says to survive is to find some meaning in suffering. But what I see is so many people today, when they can't find meaning in their suffering, they veg out in front of a screen. They're not surviving. I mean, they're, they're hanging on, right? I don't even know if they're surviving. Just dwelling. They're just getting through it. And we just turn on, we, we, we flip through the channels, or we just scroll through our phones, right? No meaning in that. That's just tuning out. Now, Nietzsche lived back, you know, in the, in, in the 19th century, so I'll give him a little bit of uh, uh, slack there. But even Nietzsche said, you know what, to live is to suffer. But then Jesus says this other thing. Let's look at the word peace. In me, you may have peace. So suffering problems are guaranteed, but peace is not guaranteed, but it is possible through Jesus. We will suffer to live, but we may not experience peace, but we can. We don't automatically get peace in our lives. We receive it as a gift from Jesus. You know, toward the end of his life, uh, Billy Graham uh, wrote a book called Just As I Am. And he was looking back over his life, reflecting on his life, the good, the bad, and the hardships. And at this point in time, Billy Graham uh, had uh, Parkinson's, and uh, he's reflecting. And, and this is what Billy Graham uh, wrote in Just As I Am about suffering. Suffering is part of the human condition, and it comes to us all. The key is how we react to it, either turning away from God in anger and bitterness or growing closer to Him in trust and confidence. 
Now, Billy Graham faced lots of suffering. He faced lots of criticism in his ministry. To be a public figure, he was in the fishbowl. All the time, people were lobbing criticisms at Billy Graham for what he was doing and what he wasn't doing. Furthermore, Billy Graham had children who were a little bit rebellious, some of them even a lot rebellious. Can you imagine being the, the famed evangelist Billy Graham and then your kids are acting up, getting in all sorts of trouble? I mean, how that must have been so difficult for Billy Graham. I mean, you parents know what it's like when your kids act up and they're not doing what you as a Jesus follower want them to do, right? It hurts. This is what Billy Graham experienced. And then, of course, he had the health issue of Parkinson's throughout his life. Billy Graham could speak from a place of suffering. He knew what it was like to suffer. You know what I like C.S. Lewis uh, said about uh, suffering? He takes it even a step further than Billy Graham. He says, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. The gift of suffering. Talk about that for lunch today. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men and women. The blows of his chisel which hurt us so much, what makes us perfect. C.S. Lewis suffered. He struggled. He walked through an incredible time in our world history where nations were at war with one another. And he saw the church crumble and cave to the forces of evil. And I can imagine how much that hurt C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis spent most of his life as a single man as well. And those of you who have never been married or maybe spent some time as a single person know how lonely that can be. In fact, he, he kind of met the love of his life when he was 54 years old. He dated a woman uh, by the name of Joy. They became friends. She was divorced. She had a couple uh, uh, adult children. They fell in love. And then he got married at 58 years old. And then she was diagnosed with cancer. He spent most of his life as a single man looking for a woman, a companion. And then when he finally found her, she died very shortly thereafter. His heart was broken. So when C.S. Lewis writes about suffering as a gift, he's not writing about these things as a theolo- an armchair theologian, a guy who doesn't know anything about suffering. He knew what it meant to suffer, to experience pain, and yet he could look at it and say, that suffering was a gift because what it did is it formed me, it shaped me, it chiseled me to walk closer with Jesus. Verse 33, I have told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, I think what Jesus is saying to us, to the disciples on that day, is that as you go through hardship, as you go through trouble, Maybe it's financial. Maybe you came in here this morning, you're like, oh boy, I've got some financial issues. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Maybe you came in this morning thinking, oh, I've got this relationship uh, issue in my life. My kids, 
oh, my kids, I can't believe my child did this. I can't believe my child said this. My kid won't even talk to me. Maybe that's where your heart is at this morning, is you are just like, oh, my kids. Maybe you came in this morning and you've got a health issue you're dealing with. Are you kidding me, God? Going through life, everything's been fine. And then all of a sudden I get this diagnosis. We're going to have troubles. Jesus promises us. He tells us to be human in this world, you will have trouble. But he says, take heart. Hang on. Keep going. Because I'm going to overcome. I'm going to declare victory over death and all the pain and struggle that you are experiencing now. One day, one day I'm going to take the world and I'm going to make it right. And it's all going to be good. And you will experience peace and joy. But until that day arrives, hang on. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you are a God uh, who knows what it's like to suffer pain, who knows what it's like to be abandoned, who knows what it's like to struggle day in and day out. And yet, God, you have promised us victory, victory over whatever challenges whatever hardships, whatever difficult things we are facing today. God, you've promised victory. Victory through what you did on the cross. Victory through an empty tomb. God, help us to never forget how the story of Jesus Christ ends. That you win. And you have taken us as followers of Jesus on to paths of victory. And we can look forward to one day experiencing that same victory with you. No more heat, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. Just peace. Peace and joy with you for all of eternity. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.